All right, we are continuing our, our series on redeeming our rule. And today, the, 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 the topic for our sermon is prioritizing our spheres. And so I wanted to start with um, a, story about, a story about a story. Um, you're familiar with Charles Dickens. Um, you probably know his books very well, or at least you know the Christmas uh, Carol very well. Um, but there's another book uh, that he wrote, a very famous novel. It's called Bleak House. And Bleak House is really about families. And the main character, Esther, and many of her companions, they, they spend much of the book visiting different people in their community. And they go to this one home, uh, which is the Jellybee home, um, Mrs. and Mr. Uh, Jellybee. And what they understand about Mrs. Jellybee is that, is that she is a great woman of philanthropy. She's working to uh, start a coffee cultivation company on the banks of the Niger River in Africa. This is in the 1800s. And so she spends much of her time writing letters, receiving letters to raise awareness and raise support for this this venture to help uh, people in Africa. And so they're very excited to meet Mrs. Jellyby. So they come to her home, and what they find surprises them. When they come into the home, they find that it is in disrepair. It's dirty inside. Um, it's like when you, when you see movies, if you want to portray like, dysfunction in the house, you, you see a kid with his head stuck between the railing and stairs. That's, that's what you see in the Charles Dickens uh, story. Um, there's a kid stuck in the railing, and nobody's coming to help him except the mailman. Um, and, and so the, the children are, are wild in the house. They're untaught. They're uncared for. And then they finally come to the living room where Mrs. Jellyby is. And she's sitting in a chair, and she's dictating letters to her eldest daughter. Uh, her eldest daughter's name is Caddy. And, and when she comes there, it seems like she's gazing out distantly. And, and she sees Africa, but she doesn't really see the things right in front of her. And she doesn't notice that her daughter, Caddy, who is writing down the letters for her, hates living at home and can't wait to leave. And then later in the story, when Caddy's about to get married, Mrs. Jellyby doesn't really pay any attention to her daughter's wedding. Um, she keeps focusing on this venture in Africa. And in the end of the story, she uh, bankrupts her family trying to get this thing in Africa started, and it ultimately, the project ultimately fails. Um, but what, what this is, Dickens is giving a caricature of, at that time, a certain kind of Victorian woman who devoted all of their time to philanthropy um, out somewhere in the British Empire, without, but they, they neglected the needs that were much closer to home in their own community in England and specifically in their own house. And so he, he entitles that chapter, Telescopic Philanthropy. Telescopic Philanthropy. She loves people but she, does, she loves them in the abstract. Um, she, she loves humanity, but at a distance. She loves people, but she doesn't love the people that, she could, that would most benefit from her love. And this, it's, a, it's a caricature. I'm not talking about a real person here, so I'm not trying to malign anybody. Um, this, it, it, but it illustrates our, our topic for today, which is prioritizing our spheres, our spheres of influence. St. Augustine said this. He said that all men are to be loved equally. But since you cannot do good to all, you are to pay special regard to those who, by the accidents of time or place or circumstance, 
are brought into closer connection with you. We're called to love all people, but we are still finite. We are limited by space and time. God has made you and put you at a certain time in history, at a certain place on this earth, with certain people around you and certain circumstances that are going on around you. And so he's given you these different spheres, different spheres of influence. Um, You can influence people here in Marietta much better and much more effectively than you can people in in India or people in Washington, D.C. God has given you different spheres of influence. And the first one is yourself. The second one is your family and then the more broader community around us. So if we're going to fulfill our cultural mandate, God has called us to rule on this earth. We have to be wise about where we direct our energy, where we spend our time. If we want to bring all creation together to glorify God, all people together to glorify God, then we have to watch and attend to where we're putting our time. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it from the scriptures. And so we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 today. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy, we read, in chapter 6, this word from Moses. Moses is preaching to the people about the Ten Commandments. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us this day. Speak to us through your word. We ask that you would teach us to love you as you call us to love you. Let us see uh, how we may rule well in this world by looking at ourselves, looking at our families, looking at our communities. And may we, Lord, give you glory in the things that we do in our work, in the way that we order our homes, in the way that we order our own lives. We ask that your spirit would be with us to open our hearts that we may hear you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this this passage that we we read this morning, it it, it comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, and it's part of the Pentateuch, which is the five books of Moses. And if we're completely honest about Deuteronomy, it's probably one of those books that when you come to it, you just don't know what to do with it because it's it's full of laws and, and regulations. And it seems very far removed from our day-to-day life. And, and some of us are tempted to skip over it and get back to the story part. You know, you come to Joshua, you want to see them coming into the land. Um, but skipping over it would be a mistake. Because when you, when you look at Jesus, when, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? He actually quotes the passage that we read this morning from Deuteronomy. And then when he's being tempted in the wilderness by Satan... What does he quote? He quotes three times from the scriptures, and all three times he's quoting from Deuteronomy. So Jesus valued this part of the Old Testament that we often neglect. There's something here for us to learn and apply in our day-to-day lives. Um, Deuteronomy gives us 
an example of what it looks like to take the scripture and apply it to a new time and a new circumstance. Because what Moses is doing in the book of Deuteronomy, it literally means second law or second giving of the law. Moses is taking the Ten Commandments, which were given 40 years before to the generation that came out of Egypt, and now he's, he's reinterpreting them and reapplying them to the generation that's about to enter the land. So they're no longer going to be living in the wilderness. They're going to be living in the land. And so he wants to help them understand how the Ten Commandments, these ten principles, apply to life as they are about to live it in the land of Israel, the promised land that they're about to enter. And, it, and this, is, this is how we ought to approach the Bible in our own lives. We want to take, we want to take the unchanging, the eternal and true living and active word of God, which remains the same, and when we encounter it, we want to come under it, under its transformative power, and see how it speaks into our day-to-day life. That's what, that's what sermons are all about, is seeing how God's eternal world touches on each and every one of our lives, each and every one of our experience. And so what we have in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy is Moses t- recounts the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And then in chapter 6 and onward, he expands upon each commandment. And so in chapter 6, he's talking about the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's the commandment he's teaching here. And what we find is that this commandment is not just about not worshiping other gods, it's about Loving the Lord your God with all of your will and all of your being. And this love characterizes how we rule ourselves, how we rule in our families, and how we rule in our broader communities. So let's, let's see how, he, how, how it starts here. So again, it starts with self. This passage moves from the self to the family to the broader community. Let's see how it works. And we're going to go point by point, seeing how we are supposed to rule ourselves and then on to family, on to community. So the first passage is from verses 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Your primary area of influence, your, your, your primary sphere is yourself, your own life. But God goes a little bit deeper than just yourself, just your life. He goes directly to the heart. He singles out your heart. Now, in, in the modern world, when we talk about our heart, we're, we're usually talking about our emotions or our affections. But in the Bible, in, in Hebrew specifically, the heart wasn't just about emotions. It was about the seat of your will. It's where your, your inclinations are, your, your dispositions are. It's, it includes your, your thoughts, your desires, and your, your longings. Jesus says that the heart determines everything else about you. He says in Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So you, if you have a good heart... Um, then good things will come from it. If you have an evil heart, then evil things will come from it. You may have a good one. You may have a bad one. And that, but but what, what kind of heart you have is determined by what you love. It's determined by what you give yourself to. Uh, Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith, he, he writes this about this truth. He says, Our wants reverberate from our heart. 
the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. The first call that this passage has for us is that we must curate our hearts, curate our loves. This is the beginning of ruling yourself. Attend to what you love, because what you love will, be, will control what you become. We become like what we worship. We become like what we, what we love. And it will affect every relationship you have, every action that you have. It will affect your, your thoughts, your hopes, your fears, everything. And that's why Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. Love God with your entire being. Love God as your ultimate desire, the ultimate object of your longing and your will. But why, why does God start here? Why does God start with the individual, with the self? You know, there's, a, there's at least two, two answers for this. Um, you, know, you may want to see great changes happen in your family or in your community or in the world. But the truth is that the person that God has given you the most influence over is yourself. Um, to take a video game analogy, I am a youth pastor after all. Um, uh, in, in video games, there's characters that you can play as, like you can take on that role and, and be that person in the game, but there's, there's other characters that you can't, and they're called NPCs. They're called non-playable characters. Like, you can't be them. Now, outside of the video, video game world, in real life, everybody is an NPC. You can't play anybody else but you. You can only control and influence your own life directly. Everybody else, you don't have as much control over. So God starts with the self. He starts with you. In real life, you are the only person you get to be. Second, how, how well you are able to influence the people around you, whether your family or your community, it depends a lot on the kind of person that you become. Uh, John Ortberg tells a story about his conversation with Dallas Willard. Um, uh, and he was looking for a way to help his church grow deeper in their spiritual life. And so he comes and he asks, asks Willard about this, and, and this is what he says. After a long pause, Willard said, You must arrange your days so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Orberg paused for a second. He's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, he's confused. He answered back. He said, no, I wasn't asking about me. I was asking about other people. I was wondering what I need to do to make the church, what I need to make the church do. I was thinking about a book everyone should read, or a program everything, everyone should go through, or a prayer system everyone should commit to. And then Dallas Willard continues, Yes, Brother John, he said with great patience and care, I know you were thinking of those things, but that's not what they need most. The main thing you will give your congregation, just like the main thing you will give to God, is the person you become. If your soul is unhealthy, you can't help anybody. You don't send a doctor with pneumonia to care for patients with immune disorders. You and nobody else are responsible for the well-being of of your own souls. In other words, the main thing you give to God and to the people around you 
is the person you become. You and who you become depends on what you love, what you give your heart to. You must arrange your day so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. Willard is talking about what our passage is talking about. It's talking about curating what you love, curating your heart. Um, it's another way of saying what God teaches. These words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. God's calling us to actively put his words before us, put them on our hearts in our day-to-day lives so that we grow to love him more and more and more. And, and this is true in, in our day-to-day life. How do we come to love something? Well, in, in, a, in a relationship, whether in your, your marriage or, or family or friendship, it's, it's through contact with each other, right? As you spend time together, as you look at one another, do things together, talk together, come to know each other, your affection for each other grows. You begin to have a story with one another. You have a history, and that captures your heart, and you begin to love each other more. And that's what God is calling us to do, is to curate our hearts by putting his words upon them, putting our, his words on our hearts so that we will know him and love him more. But, but why, why should we love God in the first place? It's because we already have a story with him. We have a history with him. He is the one who made us. He made us in his image. He gave each and every one of us unspeakable dignity and value. And he gave us authority and power and influence over this world to, to make it beautiful. Every good thing about you, every good thing in your life comes from God. And so how can we help but love him in response and, and rejoice and give thanks to him in response? But, but there's, there's, an even, there's an even more practical reason to love God. The beginning of this, this passage is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. There is but one God, the true and the living God. And besides him, there is no other. And you were made to worship him and to love him. And you thrive and you flourish when you love him and when you love the things that he loves. Now, sure, there, there are other things um, that would like to claim your worship. There are false gods who are clamoring to get your love, clamoring to get your worship. And we often give it to them. We often give our, our hearts to things that are false. Um, but the problem is, if you, don't, if you don't worship the true God, you're going to worship something. And that thing, because it's false it will destroy you. Because there's only one God who is the source of life. And because he's full of life, he can give that life to you. Every other thing that is masquerading as a God, any idols that we worship, those things don't have life in themselves. we got to get it from somewhere. Where do they get it? They get it from you. They will eat you up and destroy you and use you up and throw you away. But the true God, he doesn't need you. The true God is what we need but he doesn't need us. He has everything he needs in himself. And so because he is so full of life and abundant, in abundance, he can give it to us. And that's what we were made for. To summarize, to summarize what, what ruling ourselves looks like, we are to love God with our whole beings, curate what we love, and rule ourselves by becoming the person that God has made us to be. So that's the first sphere of influence is yourself. And the way you rule well yourself is by loving God and being the person that he has called you to become. 
But then it moves outward. Moses uh, spreads the sphere, the circle, a little bit outward to the family. And this is what he says in verse 7. You shall teach them, that is God's words, diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Moses expands it to the family. Not only are the God's words supposed to be on your heart, but they are supposed to be the day-to-day, the normal, ordinary currency of your family life. And he says, teach God's words to your children. And what's interesting is that the word for teach here, it's not the normal word for, for teach. It's actually a word that is, is more like, um, it has a sense of sharpening, like, like sharpening uh, a blade or an arrow. And so when it's applied to language, it's, it's like you, you repeat the same words again and again. You recite them so that they become sharper and sharper and sharper in your mind, just like a sword becomes sharper when you rub it again and again and again against a whetstone. Like, that's the kind of teaching that God is calling us to do in our families. We talk about God's word when we, when we sit down, when we're in our house, when we're out walking on the road, when we're lying down, when we're getting up. So basically, every part of your day... Every part of your life, in the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, God's word is supposed to be normal, just the normal thing, the normal currency. And this is, again, an image of curating our hearts, not just your heart, but your family's hearts. Because what do you do with the things that you love? Think about your friendship and your family. You want to take the things that you love, and you want to share them with other people so that they can see, oh, look at this. This is beautiful. This is good. Let's, let's, let's love this thing together. Come and love and see the thing that is true and good and beautiful. And you want to share that with them. That, and that's what we do with things that we love. We ought to do that with God's words and love them in that way. Now, there, there are two main groups in our family. Moses talks specifically about children. But there's two main groups in the family. And you can't have children without mom and dad. So there's the, there's the parents and there's the children. Those are the main groups in the family. Now, there may be more or, or less, depending on the household, like extended family or friends who are living in the household. But the primary ones that, that the scriptures single out is parents and children. And we see this in the New Testament, too. When, when Peter and Paul are writing in their letters, they will address households. And when they address a household, they first talk to husband and wife, and then they talk to children, and then they talk to other people connected to the household, usually servants. And the message that they usually give is this. Husbands and wives, love and respect each other. Teach your children to know the Lord. And children, respect, honor your parents, and obey them. When they talk to servants, they say, servants, uh, serve your earthly masters, your, your earthly employers, as you would serve the Lord. So this, this order carries, this order of, you know, mom and dad, children, and other people in the household, it, it has a lesson for us. Because oftentimes when we think about discipleship, discipling our children, it's just the children that we're thinking about. And we overlook that the first person that we are responsible to and for in our household is our husband or our wife. Because the, the marriage, the marriage covenant, that's what makes the family. That's the thing that starts it. And then everything else flows from that. And so if the marriage isn't right, if you're, you're, your husband and wife, you don't know each other well or you don't love each other well, that will have ramifications for the rest of your family life. So as it turns out, um, because this is the first thing, it's actually really good when you 
love each other as husband and wife. It's really good not only for your, your family, but other people who encounter your family. Because what your kids see at home, like mom and dad loving each other well, whatever they see at home, they're going to take that and internalize it and just rec- understand this is what's normal. This is what's normal in the world. So the, the family life that you have at home is probably what your kids are going to say, think is normal um, until they go out and grow up and realize, oh, everything was wrong. Um, <laughs> um, but, but when we're young, the things that we learn at home are the things that we understand are, are normal. And, and so ju- that leads um, a Christian writer, his name is Justin Whitmill Early. He writes this about the normal. He says, one of the most significant things about any household is what is considered to be normal. Moments aggregate. and They become memories and traditions. Our, routine, our routines become who we are become the story and culture of our families. Why is this so important? Because the normal is what shapes us the most, though we notice it the least. It is precisely the unremarkable nature of the normal that gives it such remarkable power. So let's pause for a moment and think. What is normal in your home? Is it normal to admit when you are wrong? Is it normal to confess your sins to each other when you hurt one another? Is it normal to extend forgiveness and grace and to seek reconciliation after you've been hurt? Is it normal to uh, let things just fester? Or do you come back to them and try to bring peace Is it normal to pray together? Is it normal to worship together? Is it normal to talk about the things of God at home? Now, Moses challenges us to to make those things normal. Make the love of God, his words, normal in your household. So it's not a strange thing uh, when you you bring, well, what does God say about that? Uh, So it's not strange when you, you, you apologize. But it's not strange when you point people to Jesus and talk about what he's done and how it affects our day-to-day life. Let that be the normal thing in your life. That's what Moses is calling us to, and that's what followers of Jesus are called to as well. Now, I don't, I don't know what's, what's normal in, in your household. If, if you're like me, there's probably things that are normal in your household that you wish were not normal, and there's things that um, are not normal but that you want to become normal. But the good news is this. You get to decide what's normal in your house. Because nothing is normal until it becomes normal. And new routines, new habits can be built. Um, and this is, one, this is one of the primary ways you rule in your family, that you rule over your family. It's by determining what's going to be normal in your, in your family. Um, now, I would, I would make two recommendations. If you want to see God's word become normal in your life, the love of God normal in your family, there's, there's two habits that I would submit to you. And the first is um, just family mealtimes, just sitting together to eat a meal. Uh, Justin Early, he talks about uh, mealtimes around the table as a keystone habit, a keystone habit. A keystone habit is one that um, it has a bunch of other uh, benefits that accrue to it when you do it. It's kind of like, um, you know, a home run is pretty good, right? But it's even better if the home run has three people on the base, like it would have been great yesterday 
if we had some people on bases when we had the home run, uh, but we didn't get it. We just had the one. But having a meal, having a meal together is like a home run with the bases loaded. It's a grand slam where you are able to, and all, all kinds of studies, all kinds of studies talk about the benefits of just sitting down and having meals together on a regular basis. Um, when you sit at the table, you, you face each other, you attend to each other, you learn the art of friendship. You learn how to ask questions and to listen to people when they answer, to tell stories about your life, narrate your life. It becomes this wonderful sphere where you are known and you can come to know your family. It is fertile ground for spiritual growth. And not only that, um, the table becomes the perfect place to invite other people into your family, to invite uh, hospitality, so that your home will become a missional outpost in your community because you have a table that's open. People can come and see what life is like, and they can see how the Word of God shapes your life. And then you can share what you, get, you love, not only with your family, but with the people who are outside of your family, so that strangers become friends and friends become family. Now, I don't, I don't want to romanticize um, mealtimes. Um, mealtimes at our house are pretty messy. Uh, right now, you know, Samuel is two and a half. He's talking all the time, all the time, uh, mostly describing his life um, and naming things like, that's a truck, um, that's daddy's water, that's daddy's coffee. Um, I need the coffee. But at dinner times, uh, what he likes to do for us is to repeat and tell us what Silas is saying. And Silas is nine months old. He's mainly saying, ah. Like, that's, that's what he says. And so Samuel will say, Silas said, ah. Thank you, Silas. Uh, thank, thank you, Samuel. I, I heard that. But it, it's not about any one mealtime. It's about making it the routine, making it the normal. Um, it's the rhythm and that habit which creates the space for us to be known and for us to grow spiritually and to know God together. And the, other, the other habit is, is family devotions, where you actually sit down together, you open the Word of God, you, you read it, you ask questions about it, maybe you act it out if you have younger kids or older kids, and, and then you come to the Lord in prayer and ask for Him to shape you by His words. And, and some families do this, you know, at, at a meal time after dinner is over, or maybe in the morning or in the evening. But the 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 when, when it happens is not so important, and how long it is is not so important, and how deep it is again not so important. What's important is that you're doing something instead of nothing. What's important is that you make it normal. Let it be a normal thing in your life. It doesn't have to be perfect. Don't let like the perfect family devotion be the enemy of just doing it at all. Like you want the, the, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And what's good is letting it be a normal part of your life. Just a normal part of your life. That's how we rule in our families, first and foremost, is by uh, bringing the things that we love, the word of God, before our children, before our spouse, and letting it shape our time together. But then we come to the community, ruling in our community. So again, Moses starts with the self, expands the circle to the family, and then it goes a little bit wider to the broader community. So this is what he says, verse 8 and 9. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, maybe you guys know some people who are, are Jewish. And historically, um, Jews have taken this, uh, some, some Jews have taken this verse very literally. Well, they will, they will actually bind scripture onto their, their hand and up to, up to their elbow. Um, or they'll, they'll bind this box that carries scripture right between their eyes. And it'll be right here. Um, and you can visit some, some homes, some Jewish homes. You might see uh, a little case that is affixed to a door frame. And inside of it, there's some scripture, a parchment with scripture written on it. And these are great. Those are great symbols. But I think that in this passage, Moses isn't talking literally. He's talking figuratively. Um, and we know that because in, in Exodus, he uses the same, the same figure of speech. Um, and in that, in that circumstance, in Exodus, it can't be literal. Um, it's definitely figurative. And, but what he's trying to say is this, that God's word is, to, is supposed to affect what you do with your hands. You bind it to your hands, so your actions. It's supposed to affect what you see. The thing that you put between your eyes is the thing that you focus on. It's the thing that you give your attention to. It's your purposes and your goals. And then the doorframe of the house, that's your private life, your, house, your life inside the home. And then the gates. The, it's not just any gate or like, like, like your gate to your yard. It's the city gates, the gates of the city. So it's your public life as well, not just your private life. God's word affects everything, what you do with your hands, what you set your eyes to do, what you set your sights upon, and what you do at home, and what you do in public. So the city gates were the place where, where commerce was happening, where, where business was happening in the city. Um, God claims your work. He claims your purposes. He claims your private life. He claims your public life. In other words, um, biblical scholar Stephen Dempster says this. He says, the commands written on stone must not stay there. They must also be written on the individual heart, the family homestead, and the societal gathering place. Now, your broader community, you got yourself, your family, and then the broader community. Depending on where you are and what you do, your broader community will look different. Um, if you are in, in business or if you're a, like a professional, a lot of your community is going to be your coworkers. If you are in school, much of your community is going to be classmates and teachers. If you are raising young children, you're, a lot of your community is going to be other people who are raising young children. Uh, and that's just the nature of where God has put you at this time and in this season of your life. But he hasn't just put you uh, in that place and in that season. He's put other people around you. And it's those people that you rub shoulders with day in and day out that God has called you to love. He said, going back to the beginning, St. Augustine said that we need to pay special regard to the people by accidents of time and circumstance and place who are brought closer into closer connection with us. And of course, we know that it's not just an accident. It's God's purposes that have brought you to where you are right now, to the work that you are in right now, to the family you're in right now, and into the other relationships. And then we also have our church, uh, our church community, or maybe our clubs or our hobbies, other people that we come into contact with. These are the people and places that we are called to love. But the, the modern world has done something weird where it nudges us to pay more attention to people who are far off and distant from us instead of the people who are right in front of us. We talk about an online community. 
you heard of that before? Online community. Basically, it's a community that is abstracted from real life, which is on a screen somewhere. You can't touch these people. You can maybe share some likes. But for most of all intents and purposes, you don't have hardly any influence over them. And so instead of finding our people in our families and our churches and in our, in, in our physical communities, we start to find our community in, in, in affinity groups. Like you, you associate with only the people who like the things that you like. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's, online connections, they're, they're great. They can facilitate and supplement your f- flesh and blood relationships. You can meet people through that that you can then meet in real life. Um, but they are no replacement for flesh and blood relationships. Because in a crisis, if you're in a crisis, it's not people online that you need. It's the people who are near you, the flesh and blood people who are near you that you need. And they need you too. You need those flesh and blood relationships. And you can do far more good to a classmate than you can to an online friend who lives in Ohio. You can do far more good by volunteering at your local school for an hour or two than spending 100 hours reading and debating national politics online. Some people, some people need to learn that. Um, and you may, you, may know, you may know someone who is so caught up with events and circumstances in distant cities uh, that they neglect the friends and family who are right next to them, and maybe even hold their friends and family in contempt because their friends and family don't see those events in distant cities in the same way that they do. And so they, they, they hate the people who are close to them, and they have some affinity for people who they have no influence over. C.S. Lewis talks about this circumstance. Very prescient. He just could see the Internet age back in the 1940s. Um, he wrote in the Screwtape Letters about... Uh, a senior demon uh, advising a younger demon about how to tempt his human subject. And this is what he said. The great thing is to direct the malice, that is the person's malice, to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to the people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. This is, the, this is what Dickens was referring to with Mrs. Jellybee. Uh, she had all this love and benevolence for people, that he, people she never, ever met. But she didn't care one lick about the people who were living right in her own household. The Internet age has made it easier and easier, easier than ever to fall into this trap. But we mustn't fall into it. We must tend the garden that God has given us. We must uproot the evil in the fields that we know. And the fields that we know are the people who are close to us, our own life, our family, our own circumstances and community. Rule where God has put you by letting the love of God determine what you do in your, with your actions and with your thoughts, how you act in the community. Um, there's a great story that I read about this. I can't remember where it was, but it was, it was a story about somebody who came to take over a department in a company. Um, and, the, and the company's department, it's about like 12 people or so, and, and they were struggling. It was underperforming. And when he came in, he found that the, the, the work culture was pretty toxic. People were suspicious of each other, didn't trust each other, didn't work well with each other. And, and so this, this person comes into that context 
He's trying to see how can he turn things around. And, and what he ended up doing was he would go to people's offices, to their desks. And, and when he first did that, people were like, oh, no, what's going to happen? Right? You know, your boss comes to you. You're at your desk. You're like, oh, no, is this going to be good or bad? Um, and, and what they thought was usually it's bad when the boss comes to, to visit. And, and so, but what, what he was doing when he came to visit people at their desk was not to, to criticize, not to check up on, hey, how are the numbers doing? But what he would do is just, hey, how are you doing? How is your home life? Um, so he, the, the, this boss was taking the time to get to know the people he worked with, get to know their lives, get to know the things that were important to them, the things that they loved. And, and over time, as he did that with each person in his department, it, it transformed the work culture. Because the people who are working there realize that, hey, this person, my, my, my boss, cares not only about my work. I mean, he cares that I advance well and, and gain skills and that the company does well, yes. But he cares about me as a person. He's not just trying to use me to make the company grow. He cares about my personal life and my professional life. This person had taken that, that idea of, loving God well, loving your neighbor well, and he transplanted it into his work culture so that it transformed what that department did. And suddenly, people are calling him and saying, hey, what, what did you do? Because now your, your department is like outperforming everybody, everybody, other departments in this company. And all he did was talk to people, come to know them, love them, and care about them professionally and personally. It's amazing. It's just a simple act of knowing people in your community, and caring about them. So we have ourselves, we have our, our families, we have our communities. Curate your heart. Determine what's normal in your family. And then tend the garden that God has given you in your community. Whether it's work, whether it's, whether it's kids, or whether it's school. Tend the garden God has given you. You know, bring it to a close, um, Think about Adam, Adam and Eve. God gave Adam and Eve a garden too. And he gave Adam a family to lead, and he gave Adam his own presence. God gave his word and his presence to Adam. But though Adam received all these wonderful gifts from God, he, he failed in every respect to rule well in that place. He didn't stop Satan from slinking into the garden and profaning the holy space where God dwelled. He didn't lead his wife Eve. He just stood by while Satan was tempting her. And then when she fell, he also chose to willingly reject God's word and trust the words of Satan instead. And so he fell, and he lost everything. And we are suffering the consequences day in and day out. And we do the same thing. We reject God's word. We take Satan's words instead. We've been failing like our first father ever since. So we spoil the gardens that God has given us. Um, and like Israel, we, we might commit to, to love God and, and say, yes, I want to love the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. But then the next day, we're giving our hearts to anything and everything but God. And our families and our community suffer for it. But the wonderful thing is that there was a second Adam. There's a first Adam and scripture tells us there's a second Adam. This second Adam was and is the beginning of a new humanity. 
He's the one whom God sent into the world. The one who loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, and all of his might. And God's words were on his heart. When Jesus was in the wilderness, God's word was on his heart. And so he was able to counter Satan's word, his false word, with the true words of God. And he talked about the word of God when he was sitting in the house. When he was walking on the way, he just talked with, with his disciples. It was a normal part of their life together. And God's word and the love of God's word animated everything about him, what he did with his hands, what he set his eyes to do. And what was that love of God? What was on God's heart? What was his will? It was our deliverance. It was our salvation. So God, the Father, sends the Son, Jesus. And Jesus, with a heart perfectly in sync with God, the Father, comes to work redemption for us. So Jesus' heart, he loved us. His heart was pierced for us. His soul was poured out for us. And his might was spent for us so that he could bring us back to the Father, to the one who made us, our creator. Jesus loved the Father perfectly, and so he gave his life that we would come to know our God and creator. He took our death so that we could take his life. And now, everyone who believes in him can have life through his name, and we are united to him as a, as a new body, a new person. He's the head of a new humanity. And when you believe in him, your life is bound to his life in a way that you can never be destroyed and death can never overcome you. Because you can try to curate your heart and change your habits all day long, but if you have a, a heart of stone, it's going to do nothing. You don't need to adjust your heart. You need a new heart. And that heart comes through trusting Jesus with your life, giving him your heart of stone and taking back from him a heart of flesh, a spiritual heart, one that is filled with the spirit of God. Because he rose from the dead, he is now full of life. He pours out his spirit on us that we may have life, not just in the future sometime, but right now. We can have a life that is led by the spirit so that we can rule well in our own personal lives, rule well in our communities and in our families. Only by returning to our creator in faith will you be able to rule well in the spheres that God has given you. And so, let us come to Jesus now in prayer and ask him to be with us and to be the ruler of our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you have done. You have loved us so well. Heavenly Father, you sent your son into the world and you gave him to us so that we would know you and that we would be delivered from this constant habit, this, this normal of us, this, this normal life of just giving our hearts to the wrong things, giving our hearts to things that will take from us rather than give us life. Lord, we ask that you would take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Teach us to attend to what we love so that we may love you more and more. And to take the people that you've given us, Lord, 
and care for them as you have called us to care for them, our families and our communities. But Lord, we can't do it on our own. We need your spirit. We need your strength. And so, Lord, pour out your spirit on us and teach us to love you so that we may rule rightly in the places that you've put us and with the people that you have put into our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.